0: Here we go. Episode 21, minicast. More on COVID-19. What are the clinical presentations of critically ill patients with Dr. Nick Mark? Let's do this. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We have been getting a fantastic feedback on our COVID-19 content, and so we're just going to continue to pump that out as soon as we get interviews and, and give you the latest updates. So today is our second discussion with Dr. Nick Mark on the clinical presentation that we see amongst the patients that are landing in his ICU. And this is most valuable for clinicians to get a sense of what to expect, what to see when a new COVID-19 patients are coming through the door. And so honestly, we're just going to get right to it mini cast but without further ado Dr Nick Mark.
1: I wanted to make something that you could stick in your pocket medicine or just stick in your scrub pants you know that you could refer to. And yeah. you know running through here a couple of points that were impo- that were important learnings for me and my colleagues here in Seattle. Fever is not a very reliable indicator. Only about half of the patients have fever on presentation. Wow. Only about 85% have fever during their illness at all. Mm-hmm. So don't don't use um, the lack of fever uh, as an indicator or as you know some sort of rule out. Interesting. The second interesting. clinical point that I thought was really interesting was cough is a common presenting symptom. Dyspnea, somewhat common. URI is that is the symptoms is actually quite rare. And some fraction uh, in China it was higher. In the US it's maybe lower, but maybe about uh, ten or fifteen percent of people present with GI symptoms there's some hint from the literature in China that those patients may do worse.
0: Like diarrhea. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Okay.
1: So in terms of clinical presentation, those are good things to think about. You know, I think uh, early on, finding out about travel history was really important. At this point, I think uh, eliciting a history of travel may not be that useful because most mm-hmm. cases that we see are probably going to be acquired from the community. Right. In terms of labs, I think the the ones that are really Valuable um, pearls to remember are that these patients often have leukopenia and specifically lymphopenia. That's a mm. pretty common finding. Procalcitonin, you know, uh, is uh, controversial on a normal day. Uh, here, you know, like most viral infections, it's low. But there are some rare cases of people who have a secondary infection or superinfection.
0: Superinfection.
1: So again, you know, low procalcitonin. Is is a, a strong suggestive sign, but high procalcitonin I wouldn't use to I wouldn't use as a rule out. Okay. And then in terms of imaging, so I think probably the most important thing to remember, which is not on my sheet, is that many patients have normal imaging, and especially especially at presentation. So the fact that somebody has a normal chest X ray does not preclude having COVID. If they do have an abnormal chest X ray, it's likely to be. With hazy peripheral opacities, um, the CT will likely show ground glass. That seems to be very common. There's lots of other things that that have been reported, but that I've only seen ground glass. There's some exciting work going on with point-of-care ultrasound. Looks like, you know, you can, you can screen to see if people have a lot of B-lines using ultrasound. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some suggestion that uh, that may be useful early on instead of contaminating the CT scanner um, and having to clean it. Um, I haven't seen an algorithm that really tied that all together for me, but I think, you know, stay tuned. There probably is going to be some great work there. Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about isolation and precautions. One thing that I think is really valuable at a health systems level though, is how are you going to keep people out of the hospital? Right. And so investing in telehealth programs where people who come to the come to ED with symptoms can be discharged home, like with a pulse oximeter. They can check their vitals. They can enter them in an app. And if things are abnormal, they can come in. Like that's or they can get additional questions and come in. I think that's the kind of-
0: That's happening now?
1: That's happening now. Wow, yeah. okay. And that's really exciting because if you can keep people out of the hospital, number one, uh, most of them don't have it. So you're preventing them from acquiring it noscomially. Yeah. Number two, some of them have it. And you're hopefully preventing them from spreading it right three some of them have it and are going to do just fine actually most of them who, who have it are going to do fine at home mm. and so you don't need to bring them into the hospital and endanger staff nice so if you think about nice. this as a pyramid right I mean we're as intensivists we're at the top we're dealing with the 10 percent who need the ICU the five percent who need to be uh, mechanically ventilated but you got, we got to remember there's this whole pyramid below
0: yeah absolutely
1: um, I think we've talked a lot about some of the treatment aspects of this. Mm -hmm. You know, the the pendulum has definitely swung towards a fluid sparing uh, strategy in general in the ICU. And I think that makes sense here. Mm -hmm. The people who develop florid respiratory failure from COVID are going to be intubated for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so every drop that you put in is going to be very difficult to take out later.
0: As you said, it's usually single system disease, right? Like uh, Most of them aren't presenting in septic shock where you're Worried about volume resuscitation,
1: right? And the other thing too is, um, I still don't know enough about the uh, cardiomyopathy to to really say how common, how severe is that even mm. really a distinct clinical entity? But if it is, I think we can presume that being parsimonious with fluid is a good strategy. Yeah,
0: a, a second pause, like it's a, a second reason not to, or to be liberal, or to be restrictive with the fluid.
1: Right, little C conservative with the fluid. Yeah. Then in terms of uh we talked a lot about kind of what not to do. So high flow nasal cannula, bipap. There's some I think there I saw one paper where they looked at using a helmet interface for a bipap. Yeah. Which, you know, there was this study out of the University of Chicago a few years ago where they found that it was more tolerable by patients. I think that's encouraging. I it's exciting to see if um if helmets become commonplace. Um I'm guessing there's no evidence here that that may be safer too because there's less of an air leak along your face. It's more yeah. of a tight seal. Makes sense. For the patients who wind up intubated and on a ventilator, you know, we've been following the uh, lung protective ventilation, the ARDS net protocol. I think most people, most people that I've talked to have, uh, have liked a high peep strategy. I, I found that works pretty well. Mm-hmm. And then for many patients, you know, progressing through the sort of, what I call the seven Ps, but the, you know, the sort of things we do for hypoxemic respiratory failure, PEEP, paralytics, proning, prostacyclines, Mm -hmm. what else? I think, you know, there's some experience with ECMO in this. Um, I have not seen that personally. I I think, you know, if you're only seeing a few cases and you have the resources, I think that's that's one thing. I think, you know, if we have dozens of these patients. It's hard to see how we can manage that. If you, you know, every right. patient who's on ECMO is presumably one to one. They have a perfusionist in the room as well. It just mm-hmm. becomes very difficult to sustain that, especially if each of these people are going to be on ECMO for weeks. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we should talk about the investigational therapies. Yeah. So absolutely. So some patients have gotten remdesivir. It's not FDA approved. You can get it for compassionate use or on a study from the manufacturer. Mm -hmm. There's a whole process there. I have not had experience with any of the other drugs for this. Um, I know there's people who are passionate about tocilizumab. I've used Tosi for other conditions in the ICU. So people who have cytokine release syndrome after getting CAR T cells, Tosi works wonders there. I haven't personally used it or seen it in uh, COVID. I think, you know, it'll be exciting to see if that's good. I know the manufacturer has made that drug available and it is approved. Okay. There's chloroquine where the evidence is really, really limited. It would be great if it turned out to be an effective therapy because it's cheap, widely available. Mm-hmm. And then there's an HIV drug, lipinavir, ritonavir combo, which um, I think there's some there's some early encouraging evidence. There's some clinical trials going on. I think the my bottom line is, I don't know if any of these work. Nobody really seems to know if any of these work. I think seeing if your patient can enroll in a clinical trial is the most responsible way to do this because at least then they're contributing to a body of knowledge that helps us understand which of these work. On the newest version of my one pager, there's a hyperlink there to Mm -hmm. all of the studies uh, that are going on. So you can see, you go to that list, you can see what studies are available and see if you can get your patient enrolled if you're thinking about these investigational therapies. Awesome, Nick. Perfect. Lastly, what not to do. So I know there was a lot of use of oseltamivir for this in China. That never really made sense to me because it's targeting, it's inhibiting a protein that the virus doesn't have. So right. neuraminidase inhibitor and the virus doesn't have neuraminidase. There's no evidence that that's effective that I've seen. So even though it's a drug we have and we, and we use for something else, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use it here. Cool. Um, and then lastly, corticosteroids. So I think the evidence is not just we don't know. It's actually we know not to. Really. The WHO and the CDC have, have recommendations not to use these. Mm-hmm. You know, there may be individualized cases where somebody has concomitant COPD and you think they may benefit from steroids or somebody may have, you know, pressor refractory shock and you want to give them steroids for that reason. So I'm not saying don't don't use steroids ever in this, but I think, you know, the the desire to just put, put every all comers on steroids is, is not a good one. Don't follow it.
0: Mm-hmm. Amazing, Nick. Like the summary is so great and this is gold. And I think having a bit of knowledge in, in terms of what to expect. I know at least for me this is empowering you know it, it gives you the sense that you know we can get through this and we will we'll be able to deal with whatever comes in front of us
1: for for me too i mean the, the reason why i made this was because you know i learning about this right writing stuff down kind of made me feel like i knew something and then mm-hmm. i think you know i have colleagues who are hemonc docs or id docs or nephrologists are being drafted into like an ICU risk pool you know there's mm. people who haven't been in an ICU since they were residents and suddenly they're facing the prospect of having to manage in the ICU again and I, I think you know giving them a resource that the same way you know I felt as a resident having that having that red book in my pocket made me feel confident it's nice to have something like that
0: amazing I gotta I gotta thank you buddy and I want to commend number one thank you for doing the show number two Commend you for the great work you're doing locally and and saving lives, my friend, in a risky time. And I know this is what we're paid to do, but you're, you know, you're doing it. You know what I mean? And uh I can't commend you enough for it. Thanks. And um really appreciate you sharing the knowledge. And I, I want to also let our listeners know like Nick's real, man. Like he's he's got a three <laughs> three year old and a two month, two month is the the little yeah, the yeah and so he's he's uh you know he's there's life outside of of work here too he's managing a family as we heard earlier and
1: uh I think it's really important to stay safe at work um so so you know you you don't get sick but also to um make sure that you and your significant other do not kill each other when you're locked up at home. <laughs> that's another important survival survival skill
0: yeah no i I hear you big guy. I hear you.
1: I, I think I already said this, but just one one last plug for this. Sure, yeah, no, absolutely. I've been trying to, whenever I start to say the word patient, try to sub in people or person, mm-hmm. you know, because I think it's very easy to forget that people, people get this, mm-hmm. right? Um, the ICU can be a dehumanizing place when people are hooked up to machines, they can't talk, they can't interact. And especially when not not only are they isolated because we have to wear all this gear to to interact with them, but we're scared to interact with them. We want we don't want to go in the room. I think it's important to remember that that these are people, you know, and and uh, that a little bit of compassion goes a long way because it it must be really scary to be going through this
0: as a patient. A great reminder once again. Nick, thanks so much for doing this and. If it's okay with you, we might get in touch if uh, we have more questions uh, on the other side of the border here, buddy. All right. Sounds good. Um, Stay safe, man. Yeah, you too. Thank you, everybody, for listening to our second discussion with Dr. Nick Mark. I hope this was of value, especially to the frontline clinicians that are out there, and uh, I hope this helps you stay safe and more confident when taking care of critically ill patients I want to thank our sponsors better help and audible.com there's going to be links to how to sign up uh in the show notes um which also obviously helps support the show and any comments leave at quadcast99 at gmail.com you can follow us on twitter at quadcast as well as instagram youtube and facebook And uh, like I said in the intro, we're going to continue to bring out uh, COVID-19 content and let us know what you want to hear. And we're going to do our best to oblige. Stay safe, everybody. Take care.